Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Click, click, click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Humans have always felt the need to communicate. As language developed, man's knowledge soon surpassed collectively what any person could remember individually. We began recording and storing what we'd learned for future generations. First the telegraph, then the telephone, then radio, then television. Our need for information was growing faster than our ability to move it, until now. What started as a spark has come of age as a pulsating beam of light. Today, we're able to move massive amounts of information literally at the speed of light on a strand of cable that can fit through the eye of a needle. Welcome to Enron Broadband Services the next step in the evolution of communications technology. Welcome back to Fraudsters for our penultimate episode on Enron. Jeff Skilling, Kenneth Lay, uh, Andy Fastow, the whole gang. We've been wrapping it up. As always, I'm at Cena now on all social media. Justin Williams is here. JustinWilliamsComedy.com. Give us a text on our community line, 412-285-1255. April 22nd is the end of our season one here with Spotify. We're going to have a happy hour that night on Zoom. You can only get the link if you text us on our community line and join the party. Yes, and I just found out that uh, you don't know which one of us is responding to the messages if we don't leave our name on there. So, <laughs> <laughs> so if there's any off the wall comments, just assume that that is our producer Hazel. <laughs> exactly, she drinks while she texts all the time. <laughs> there was a couple Saturday nights where I was on there. And I was like, "Oh dear, uh, should not be doing this." <laughs> all right, so listen. Last week we talked to Harvey Rosenfeld founder of Consumer Watchdog, an advocacy group that was trying to fight for Californians before, during, and after the energy crisis there. Today, we're going to talk about someone that was right there in the thick of it, not in Houston, but in Portland, Oregon, where they were trading energy. So running the trading team for this project was this guy named Tim Belden. Now, he 
was actually the least fraudy of the fraudsters at Enron. I don't even know if I could even call him as much of a fraudster as just a very smart, cynical person. He wasn't a typical Enron swinging dick. People at Enron actually called him a tree hugger because he rode his bike to work. He was 30 when he joined the company in 1997, and he made a bet at that time that the price of electricity would go up. There was simply, according to him, not enough power to go around, right? He was betting that the demand was increasing with all this new tech stuff happening and that the supply was not growing. California wasn't producing enough energy inside the state, so they had to depend on a lot of this hydroelectric power outside the state. Hydro accounted for, especially the hydro that was coming from Oregon, accounted for 40% of the producers of power for the West. Yeah. You know, when you get a spike in the price of electricity, that is called a price shock. There you go. It's, oh my God, shocking. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, Justin, but like, seriously though, what happens when you don't have enough water? If you're running on hydroelectric power, what happens when you go through a drought? What happens? What happens when there's no supply? So the prices are going to go up when you have a deregulated energy market. And so that's exactly what happened. And, and on top of that, we know there was all of the manipulation that was happening as well. And remember, those prices went from 24 to $40 per megawatt hour to $750 per megawatt hour. Oh, my God. How? How, right? This is fucking insane. It's insane. Last week, we also talked about how special interests were able to ram through that California Congress deregulation bill under the guise that consumers need more choice because... Choosing your electrical power is like choosing a movie on fucking Netflix, okay? You need, you want your choices. Fuck that shit. Come on. That is so absurd. Who sits there and is like, I want my electricity from this other place? Now, maybe you want to say, like, I want clean energy versus coal energy. Sure, I get that. But who wants choice and just who's administering their energy? I don't know. I changed my energy um, from uh, PSEG to um, Metro PCS, and it's way cheaper at Metro PCS. I've been using Cricket for a while. I don't know what. (laughs) Yeah. uh, So, you know, and what that bill did, though, guys, is that it made the laws of supply and demand more like the law of Darwin, the survival of the fittest. So these energy traders, Enron especially, were able to then move power out of the state through one trade and sell it back in another. So, of course, if you move the energy out of California on a Tuesday, they're going to have less energy. And when you have a big demand, let's say on a Wednesday, well, you're going to want to pay whatever the fuck you can for it. So when the energy companies pay a bunch to buy that energy through these Enron traders, they got to pass that cost onto the consumer. And they called these trades fun names like Fat Boy, Death Star, Ricochet. These would be what would really blow up in their face because other traders at other places other than Enron were doing the same type of trade, but Enron guys got busted for it. It got public. And also other places didn't really name their trades like this either. And since Enron owned some of the power stations or had large stakes in them, traders could call them up and say, hey, you mind running some maintenance? And then boom, they shut off the power, prices spike. We actually were able to talk to one of the energy traders at the time who saw a lot of this happen. And when the dust settled, he was pretty shook at what he participated in and witnessed. 
Colin Whitehead was in his 20s when he joined the energy trading desk at Enron, and he helped us understand what was happening on the inside and how they made money from just working complex trades to take advantage of vulnerabilities in the market. Okay, Colin, thanks for joining us here. Uh, it's so exciting to talk to someone that was in the belly of the beast of Enron. Tell me, before we even dive in, you were a real-time energy trader. Uh, can you tell us what energy trading is? How does it work? What does that even mean when you trade energy? Sure, um, I can give you the basics. And I think energy trading now is certainly a little bit different than it was 20 years ago. And I'd also clarify that I never was in Houston. So to say I was in the belly of the beast, maybe in this okay. misnomer, I would say I was, I was in the left leg of the beast. Left <laughs> um, leg, a strong <laughs> left though, a strong left. Um, yeah, I was, so I was in the, the Portland uh, office, which was um, a West Coast trading office and where all of the Western energy trading was taking place. Got it. But um, I guess to, to bring it down, basically to say what uh, energy trading is, is it's commodity trading like any other commodity trading except the difference being energy cannot be stored. It's only available in real time. And so uh, in the early 90s, uh, energy, wholesale energy trading was deregulated. And so it became something that not just utilities did amongst each other, but third parties could come in, merchant energy companies that had generators own generation or did trading on behalf of generation could participate in this new commodity market. So it, because energy can't be stored, stored and to maintain the commodity nature of it, it would was sold in discrete time amounts. Generally, long-term energy sales are done through uh, power purchase agreements, long-term contracting. That's typically multi-year energy contracts. But most of the energy trading that people think of was done in the day ahead market, which was today was a Wednesday. And today they were trading Thursday's energy. So um, all of the energy that, that typically would the utility would use outside of their own generation um, that they would need last minute. Let's say it was colder or hotter than the utility expected and they hadn't planned for an additional 100 megawatt hours for the peak stretch of energy. They would have to go out to the market and buy that in the day ahead market. And then the real time market is sort of like the fallback. Um, it's the market of last resort. Utilities get, it's an hour ahead market. And so, right, the real time market trades 24 hours a day. And so, right now, it's 1812 on the East Coast. So they're they're still trading for the hour ending 20. So they're trading for next hour um, until for another 14 minutes, 15 minutes. And then at the bottom of the hour, the trading stops and they'll be cleaning up and recording all of their trading. And then they start trading again at the top of the hour for hour ending 21, which would be nine o'clock. There's two different kinds of trading practices here. Most of the time you're trading for the day ahead or maybe a longer term contract of some kind. So let's say right before a snowstorm or something like that, uh, the, the price of electricity could go up because demand's going to go up and that's for electricity. Does that also cover other forms of energy as well? Uh, yeah, that's certainly true for natural gas. We saw that in Texas um, a month ago. And, I, you know, I can use that, I think, as part of an example, because it was somewhat analogous as to what happened during the West Coast energy crisis. And, and I will say, I guess, the clarification that most, I think, all trading organizations that I know of, each of those markets, the long -term, longer term markets, uh, the day ahead market and the real time market are handled specifically by certain kinds of traders that traders don't cross function across those markets that, you know, like at the time that I was on the West Coast trading floor at Enron, there were 12 of us that were real-time energy traders and we traded energy 
24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Um, the day ahead market wow. um, was a more of a typical commodity market. They traded energy Monday through Friday. And on Friday, they traded Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. Wow. That is an intense type of trading for sure. When you were at Enron, you went, you came into Enron in early 2000. That was just before the West Coast energy crisis. Is that right? Yeah, I actually, I th think I started in August of 2000. So right about the time things started to heat up. And what was the vibe when you got in there? Who was, who hired you? So I was hired um, by uh, the real-time desk, John Forney, who was um, at that time, the real-time desk manager. I uh, was one of 12 uh, individuals that were trading uh, real-time energy uh, in California and also on behalf of Enron Energy Services. And sorry, uh, what was the, can you tell me what the interview was like? Was it like a, a certain like intense interview? Was it like to get into the Enron? At the time it was certainly, I was, you know, 27, 28 years old. It was certainly different than anything I had uh, encountered previously. You know, it was clear that, you know, I think there was kind of an investment banking vibe to it. It was typical interview process early on. You get the HR screen and then the person that brought you in interviews you. And then you get uh, interviewed by handpicked a couple of the other real-time traders to interview you. So I remember during the interview, I made like just a, a snarky comment to one of the individuals interviewing that, that I would never have made during a traditional interview. And lo and behold, I was still hired. So whether that was positive or negative, I don't know. Uh, I think I think we do the probably a positive, I would say. Uh, so when you got in there, what was the kind of culture that you were, you know, inducted into? What was the work life there? Um, it was very much a trading floor. It was an open floor. The only people that had offices, I think were, uh, Tim may have had an office, but he didn't use it. He, he sat with the traders and Tim was, Tim Belden was a trader. Uh, he was a trader manager. So he was, you know, kind of like in that manager player sort of role, but it, you know, it was a big open floor with two rows of traders at computers. And then above at the front of the floor for everybody to see were, you know, five 60 inch plasma screen TVs showing, you know, one had CNN constantly on, uh, one had the Weather Channel constantly on, and then you know the others were you know relevant regional news stations or or something industry related. Are trading floors uh, like they're depicted in the movies, where it's like the you know the boss comes out and it goes, "Damn it, Johnson, I'm tired of your cowboy nonsense." And it's like I put 400 on such and such, and it's like, and then it hits, and then everyone cheers and throws papers in the air. <laughs> Not quite like that, but there certainly were. Uh, individual celebrations when a trade went through or a strategy worked, that person that implemented that would, you know, give out a shout and people recognize what happened and there'd be some high-fiving going on. But, you know, it certainly wasn't characterized the way it is in the movies. It, it, and, there, you know, it wasn't like a lot of people up and down and jumping and shouting, you know, certainly people on phones. And I remember one trader in particular that would get pretty volatile on the phone uh, and yell at whoever the counterparty he was talking to on the phone. And it just sort of became uh, part of the backdrop of the day. You know, the traders sat, you know, in front of these giant monitors. Every trader had two monitors, one with like giant spreadsheets of running everything. And then, you know, another that was running whatever news station wasn't available on the, on the overhead monitors. Let's talk about Tim Belden for a second. Who, who was he? You said he was like the kind of manager player as well. 
what was he like and what was his role and how much influence did he have over the day-to-day of what you were trading on and the overall strategy of your trades? Sure, sure. Uh, Tim was his title at the time. It was managing director of the West Coast trading floor. I don't know how old he was at the time. He's certainly probably only in his 30s. Um, he was, I think, universally well-liked on the floor. He is uh, a nice guy. And, uh, you know, I still have a, a fair amount of respect for Tim Belden. Um, and the work that he's doing now, he and he and his partner, Jeff Richter, are, are doing some interesting work that I'm happy to delve into a little bit later, if you like. You know, I wouldn't say that he set the tone of the floor so much as uh, just the overall Enron atmosphere set the tone of the floor. And I think that uh, Tim, Tim, I don't think, had spent a lot of time in Houston. He came out of sort of the academic world. Um, he had a, a, a graduate degree in public policy and had worked for several years at uh, at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. You know, I think came on board as a sort of an intellectual heavyweight by all observances. And Tim was the guy that rode his bike to work. Um, he lived and I think still lives in a very modest house in a, a nice Southeast Portland neighborhood. So yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I think that to try and paint Tim as a a loose cannon or a cowboy isn't really accurate or fair. I think that his motivations for how he traded and and how the floor behaved are a little bit different than, than people have ascribed to him. How did you get into the, and I want to kind of get into like the California crisis here. You go in there, it's August 2000. We're basically at the cusp of this energy crisis that's going to happen. I think uh, California had de- was had deregulated, I think, in July, uh, was the something like that, or June or July of that time. And then things started to change as far as the fluctuation of energy prices at that time. Where, would, where did the directive come to say, hey, the energy market in California is de- deregulated right now. Here's our strategy. Where did that come from? Whether or not I ascribe to this particular theory, but definitely a, a sort of survival of the fittest and commodity trading and trading floors are one of the last bastions of pure capitalism. And I think that that's what, you know, all of these guys approached it with is particularly a lot of the younger traders who didn't really have any much other work experience that, you know, they were taking you know, academically what they'd been taught about capitalism as a dogma and and applying that to what they saw in front of them. And so, you know, I think that, that was how they they justified a lot of their um, actions. And I think it's what drove a lot of their motivations that, you know, that the market was the was right and that the market would correct, you know, things that were weren't behaving how they should behave. Okay. So let's get into the weeds here a little bit here. It's winter in California, which is, I'm here, it's winter, it's fantastic here, you know, sunny, it's pretty mild here. There's not a huge demand for electricity at that time. How, what was the conversation like hearing about the winter in California being almost an opportunity to uh, arbitrage, if you will, on the price of electricity? Yep, yep. Well, you know, I think that, Traders make money, brokers make money because brokers don't take ownership of the product. You know, tra- sometimes, you know, there are certain instances when they do, but traders and brokers uh, profit most during volatility. And so that's, you know, uh, when, you know, that's when they eat. Uh, they eat what, children? <laughs> in some occasions, <laughs> yes. I mean, it's, it seems that way. But um, the, the, the California energy crisis was a perfect storm of of three different things, and I think to blame Enron for the California energy crisis is not accurate. 
it Enron certainly didn't help and Enron profited tremendously from the California energy crisis, but there were other participants who behaved as badly or worse than Enron did as a market participant. But the conditions that created the existence of those arbitrage opportunities was the fact that it was a very, very dry winter in the Northwest and we had very little hydro to send to California. So to get technical about it in the California and, and the Northwest have a seasonal relationship with energy uh, typically. And now with the amount of, of solar that California has and, and their renewable situation is a little bit different, but in the winter time, California is the source for energy in the Northwest because it's very cold in the Northwest. And so our winter peak is greater than our summer peak in the Northwest typically. And so that means that in February, the coldest month of the year in the Northwest, we're using more energy than we have a lot of the times. And we get that extra energy from California because it's mild in California in the winter. Well, in the summer that flips on its head. And in August, air conditioning load in California is greater than the air conditioning load in the Northwest. And so the snow is melted and the um, dams are running pretty high and the Northwest becomes the source for California's sink in the summertime. I guess my question then, though, is from what I've learned is that the supply, though, that California had should have been enough to meet the demand of Californians. And so where was the disconnect that they weren't able to supply the amount of energy they needed? Obviously, we've heard the stuff that, you know, where they call up the utility company and say, hey, take a break for a few hours. You know what I mean? There's, you know, how do we how do we reconcile that? Sure. One, I think that the lack of hydro in the Northwest was something that, you know, California, when California had gotten in situations where there were actually some planned outages or forced outages, not just arbitrage or, or manipulated market manipulation outages. There were actual some outages that, that were, you know, because plants went down for, for maintenance or gas turbines had steam tube leaks or through turbine blades or, or what have you. But I think that the situation in the Northwest with the lack of hydro to be able to send to California exacerbated. And then really to top it all off, I think throughout a lot of 2000 and 2001, natural gas prices were uh, on the West Coast were extremely cost prohibitively high. A, a product that would normally sell for $3 a million BTU was selling for five to 10 times that. Uh, I, I think uh, I can't give you specifics. I'm not a gas guy, but um, I think that down in the in the California hub, um, gas Southern California hub gas market, there were transmission problems. And I think nationally, they were having trouble getting gas from further east and that there were constraints on getting that gas distributed in California to the Northwest or from other states to California. So I hear you on there. There were probably some maintenance issues and some things that go down. and But we're also dealing with a market that's newly deregulated, which means it's at the whim of market participants, which you said beyond Enron, there were plenty of other people that were bad faith players in that market as well. Isn't the fact that an energy price can skyrocket and it affects the consumer, isn't that a fundamental problem with a deregulated system if the market doesn't correct that system? Sure. That's a flawed market design. I can't speak specifically to what the market flaws were, whether it was that the regulators, when they established the California market, didn't stress test it if they didn't have enough market participants help create the market. You know, I think that Tim and that Enron and that others had talked to California regulators and had 
I think, and told them about some of these issues and some of these problems and said that when you set up a faulty market, when the market isn't complete, you are going to create problems like what happened. And that's certainly not an excuse. And But I think that because the market was poorly designed, traders looked at that as the naivety of California and saying, okay, well, we're going to show them why it's broken. Certainly at Enron, the behaviors at Enron were never directed or didn't have the face of the California consumer. The, the behaviors at Enron were you know, motivated by... People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... <laughs> 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Looking for some amazing TV to stream? Indulge yourself with the hits on Hulu you can't miss. Dive in with Barney, Ted, Robin, and the gang on How I Met Your Mother. All nine seasons are now streaming on Hulu. Then you can move to Modern Family, Schitt's Creek, and My Wife and Kids. We're talking every episode and every season of these shows. We're talking huge hits, streaming on Hulu whenever you're in the mood. Now we're talking. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna. To keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night. No matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale. Even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch. When it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great. I think interests of traders to, to show off and, and to, I think, you know, do some dick swinging, to put it frankly. Um, but also because, you know, there was a financial reward at the end of that and that, yeah, California was on the other end of that, but it was great Avis and it was a flawed market. And it was, you know, these, um, these naive politicians who had established this market that was so easily gamed that took away the, the personal impact of, of the behavior. And I think sort of allowed people to continue doing what they were doing. Right. If you're just behind a trading desk and you're just making these trades, you see a system, you don't see the person that's losing their power or having to pay thousands of dollars. No, I mean, that's uh, we get that. And we get like the separation and the kind of like the the idea of not being able to humanize those trades. Right. And I think it sounds like you're a pretty conscious guy and you may have felt that in, in the moment. You probably saw that happening. Like, hey, if the price is this high, how can we be still making millions off this when everyone in California is getting hosed right now. Yeah. I mean, I certainly something that occurs to you. I, you know, I remember that the conversation that's in, in the movie where the trading floor watching the buyers burn the power lines and disrupt transmission in California. 
And one of the traders says, burn, baby, burn. I was there. I was next to him. And I heard that statement. Um, and it, it was a, a surreal moment for me. How did you feel? I, I was not, not quite sure how to take it. You know, I said, this didn't seem to be something that I should be cheering for. Burn, baby, burn. That's a beautiful thing. But, you know, we were repeatedly told that what we were doing wasn't illegal. And what we were doing was, you know, gaming the system, I think, is a connotation that is more than that. But we were taking advantage of arbitrage opportunities. And that's what traders did. And, and therefore, we were being good traders if we took advantage of arbitrage opportunities. Where was that messaging coming from? Was that a skilling from the top that trickled down to everybody else? Uh, not maybe direct messaging so much as I think all of these people had gone to business school and they had come out of finance backgrounds. You know, they were cut of trader cloth. And when you're cut of trader cloth, that's sort of what you're ingrained to believe. And I think so when, when traders came to Enron, there wasn't a lot of grooming that needed to take place. It was sort of like, you're a trader, behave like a trader. I guess at the end of the day, let's go back to that day when you, you were sitting next to the guy and he said, burn, baby, burn. What was the end of that day like for you? What did you do? You know, I, I finished my 12 hour shift. I thought, what a, a strange day. You know, I think I'm going to ride my bike home and sort of muse on it while I ride and sit down and drink a beer before I go to bed to get up for my next 12 hour shift. I guess I want to also kind of find out what do you think is the biggest misconception that people have about Enron? And I think one of the things you mentioned is that they weren't the only bad actor in the energy market, but kind of expand on that for me. And what aren't we seeing and who else could have kept this disaster from happening? Well, you know, I think that Enron was concerned with its impact to the extent that it was uh, concerned about legal liability. Uh, and so there is a, a law firm in Portland that is a very well-respected, highly regarded law firm that has a, an excellent energy practice, Stoll Reeves. And there was an attorney, there were two attorneys at Stoll Reeves that Enron hired to bring onto the floor to document the trading practices and then to create a report and write essentially what the legal liability was that Enron was facing. And uh, after those two attorneys created that report, Steve Hall and Christian Yoder, who then had to testify in front of the Senate Energy and Natural Resources, they were hauled into Congress and had to testify before Congress. And once that memo was written and distributed amongst uh, executives at, at Enron, our trading practices changed tremendously. And so I had I never traded into California. I initially started out on this energy services desk where I was trading our partner energy and taking a cut. We would like an 80-20 split. We'd get 80% of the revenue would go to the, the client and 20% would be kept by the, the organization. My next progression pro would have been trading into California, but then after the memo was written, Enron ceased all trading into California. And so at least on the real-time desk. And so then what we did is we traded at the California-Oregon border, Cobb, it's called. There's a collection of substations that Northwest Utilities and all the California utilities plug into uh, at Cobb and they can exchange energy between the Northwest and California at the California-Oregon border. Um, and uh, so instead of trading into California and buying transmission and sending it down on the North path to San Francisco, and then again, along the South path to, to LA, we would just drop it at Cobb on the Oregon side and it would be picked up by whatever counterparty we sold it to. Um, I remember, and again, when I mentioned that like typical uh, energy pricing, even today is in the thirties or in the case of some renewables cheaper than that per megawatt hour. And I have distinct memories of selling energy 
for $720 a megawatt hour to Williams companies at the California Oregon border. So these are other companies. So it almost sounds like yeah. when this system got made, this deregulated system, and Lord knows, I don't know who made it. It sounds like whoever made it, they either were in on it, they wanted it to be this way, or they were too negligent to figure out that it would be treated this way. But it was like chum in the water. And the traders were the sharks, and they were like, well, if you're going to put all this chum in there, we're going to eat it. Is that a fair assessment? That's absolutely a fair assessment. There's a book about sort of a business strategy um, called Blue Ocean Strategy, and uh, it is that we want to go for business opportunities that are blue oceans that aren't bloody, that don't have chum in the water, that, you know, because that's the competitors, you know, eating everyone else's lunch and eating you know, each other. Back to the eating children again. Go ahead, Justin. Yeah, and as opposed to the other book, Deep Blue Sea, where <laughs> you are actually eaten after given uh, an inspirational speech. <laughs> Whoa. So if you could go back in time, would you do anything different? Um, you know, I've given this a lot of thought. Uh, you know, I think at the time, I didn't really have a full understanding of the gravity of the situation. And I look back and in reflecting 20 years later, I don't think that it was reasonable to assume that 22 year old, 23 year old, 24 year old men and women are going to have the life experiences to fully grasp the gravity of the things that they're doing. Mm. I certainly didn't. And, and I'm not making an excuse. I'm, that. I'm using that as an explanation. Um, you know, yeah. I, I, I would like to think that if I were to go back and do it again, I would have the courage to ask ask more questions. Yeah, that is it's actually really interesting you say that because we've talked to other people that have said a similar thing, right? That they wish they would have asked more questions or more people would have asked more questions. And I guess what we're finding is that that culture there almost repressed questions, which again is so ironic with the number of why commercials that were coming out of Enron that asking why when you're there was just not an option about why we were doing something. Right, sure. You know, I, I think that the Enron culture was somewhat tempered in the Portland office just by the fact that it was Portland and that Portland's not Houston. I've always heard, and my understanding is that Portland is the second highest number of people employed in the energy industry only to Houston, Texas, in electricity, not energy, because Houston's got a lot of oil and gas. But in electricity, that Portland is the second highest number of professionals employed in electricity industry. We've got two uh, consumer utilities, Pacific Power and PGE. We've got uh, the energy market of the Army Corps of Engineers, which is the Bonneville Power Administration. Um, then we've got all of the renewable developers um, and energy marketers in Portland. The, the intellectual capital in the energy industry in Portland is pretty tremendous. And I would say culturally, I've been to both places. I'd say very different. I would say the differences uh, probably manifest themselves in the corporate world as well. Portland, a little bit more chill than the oil and gas crowd in Houston, Texas. I mean, you you were riding a bike to work, not driving an F-150. So I <laughs> right. think that. Yeah, you know, and, and that, yeah, that's interesting, right? Like, you know, I don't know that many of the other traders bike to work, but I did just because it was exercise. And, you know, when you're cooped up behind a screen for 12 hours at a time, it's something that you desperately need. But it was, I always was sort of uh, cheered by the fact that Tim Belden rode his bike to work most days, you know, that here was this guy who was a big shot, you know, who 
had a seven figure bonus that got on his bike and rode it to work. There was, yeah. I, I mean, someone in the Portland office, like, did any of you guys use natural soaps? Cause if one person <laughs> used like a natural soap, that's one more person than all of Enron headquarters in Houston. Yeah. 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 <laughs> hey, uh, I use Dr. Bronner's every day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there we go. <laughs> well, I guess my, my only kind of like last questions here are, you know, what made you come forward to talk to Alex Gibney and, and the documentary at first, you know, there was a ton of other traders. What, what made you want to speak up? Yeah. The Portland producer, uh, Kate, and I'm forgetting her last name contacted me and I had just started working as a, a renewable energy marketer. I was running a renewable energy program for utility. Uh, and I wasn't trading anymore. Uh, and I wasn't, didn't have any plans to be part of the trading world. And I sort of had stepped away from that. And I, I felt, you know, like I, I, you know, had a bad taste in my mouth from my experience there. And I felt that a sort of a way to like exercise those demons was to tell somebody about it in a public way. Um, and to do it in a way that, you know, initially I think I wanted to just flame everybody and be, you know, angry about it. But then I thought about what had been portrayed in the press and that there was a little bit that I felt was inaccurate or a fair amount that was inaccurate. And I thought that I wanted to paint what happened in, from my perspective, in, in what I felt was, you know, my observations. And I, I did call, um, I called a couple of people to ask them what they thought about my appearance. Uh, my boss at the time said, as long as, you know, you don't, say who you work for now i'm cool with it and i talked to my utility client and they were like as long as our name doesn't come up we're fine with it um and i called and i talked to steve hall and steve said you know she contacted me and for obvious reasons i can't participate in the project he said but you have a unique perspective and uh, i think that you know if it's something that you know there's not much in the way of ramifications that you have to worry about that you know i trust you to you know say say your piece and uh and so with that sort of conversation, I just told her, yes, that I would go forward and do it. Um, and I ran into several other um, people in afterwards who were Enron alum who had who saw me in public and said, you know, I, I saw what you, you said and I saw you're, you're part of the film. And, and I, I respect that. I, I appreciate that. You mentioned that. And thank you for that answer. And, and you mentioned that you were you wanted to talk because you were angry. What were you angry about? Um, you know, I hadn't had an experience like that before and I, I was unprepared for it. I think that I was angry at myself for not responding um, in a way that, that I had hoped mm. would have been part of my character. Um, I was, mm. I was angry that, um, that, that I couldn't say that I was part of an organization that had done, you know, good things or that had provided some benefit during a national crisis. Um, and, yeah. and I think I just was, I, I was not, cut of a trader cloth and you know it i didn't feel ever like a member of the team it was very much a locker room atmosphere um which you know i that's that's traders and you know i guess a trader is going to be a trader it's like do we punish the wolf for being a wolf now i granted simplifying things a bit i understand but you know i i was frustrated thank you for that answer i, I appreciate and i honestly i, I know how this has got to be difficult to like relive it and talk about it again. So I, I really, uh, we're so grateful that you, they chose to come on and, and talk with us about it on a show called fraudsters. So I, it's, it's a, uh, it's really, I think speaks to what, you know, the courage you're having to even talk to us. Cause this is not probably not an easy thing, but it also sounds like you're, you're in the renewable space now. So you're no longer in the kind of like, um, 
you know, uh, fossil fuel kind of industry side of things, but you're in the renewable side of things. Was that because of the Enron situation where you're like, I want to be part of things that help the world or? It was very much intentional. After Enron, I said, I learned a lot and I learned how energy moves in the West. I learned a lot about energy and certainly, you know, the smartest guys in the room is very accurate. You know, I worked with a lot of very smart people and I value that in my career, but I wanted to do that in a way that was certainly more aligned with my personal ethic. And, you know, I think something that was beneficial for the world and for the environment. And I was fortunate to get a job uh, doing renewable energy marketing and uh, did that for four years. And then at that time, um, there was a renewable energy developer that was opening a Portland regional office. And I was uh, one of the first developers they hired for that. So I was there for four and a half, five years. Went to another renewable developer in Chicago and uh, I'm still uh, still doing renewable energy project development work. And it's it's a lot of fun. It's really enjoyable to see the benefits that not only that you can bring to a community, but that you can give to landowners. Colin, is there anything that we missed that we didn't cover that you want to share with us that we should uh, address? I just, I think an observation is that, again, I mentioned all the people that I worked with at Enron. I, I do respect most of them and, and, and they do think that, you know, despite what happened, think most of them have a high degree of integrity. Uh, Tim and Jeff are running a very successful consulting business that is um, highly regarded. Most of their clients now are renewable energy developers. Everybody that I know of, at least that wasn't retirement age by now, um, is worth still working in the energy industry, you know, and they went to other energy marketers and they went to utilities. We had a, the person that was running our fundamentals desk was an administrator at the Bonneville Power Administration is now working um, for the state of California, which is a sort of a, an ironic trail. Uh, professional trail. Well, man, I mean, it was a big company. So everyone either, you know, had to learn a lesson and move on to something. So I'm glad it's, it's making a positive impact in some places. Well, Colin, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for, I know you were on a big, long car ride and you got here and you came into your hotel room to talk to us. Uh, I hope this was an enjoyable experience for you. Thanks. I appreciate it. You know, Justin, I, I, I get where he's coming from, but these, these guys were doing trades that really fucked with people's lives schools that had negotiated lower rates but in exchange the power company had the right to turn their power off something that these schools when they negotiated these rates were like oh that'll never happen they had to send students home because the electricity company literally pulled the plug on them companies shut off their air conditioning across california when it was a hundred degrees outside even mr burns would not do something like that That's maybe potentially or maybe Mr. Burns would be like, oh, I wish I thought of that. But yeah. <laughs> protests were springing up everywhere. Enron was making somewhere around $200 million between May and August of 2000. And honestly, what I think happened was kind of two things. White boy summer? Yeah, exactly. White boy summer, we have to be ready for that. No, that's what it is. When Enron made between $200 million between May and August of 2000, that's, that's the original white boy summer. Oh my God, you're right. It's an actual white boy summer. Wow. That's so sad. <laughs> talking with Colin, talking with Harvey, I really kind of understood this happening in a couple ways. It was like, first, you had actual supply issues, right? And those created weaknesses, almost like like uh, the California energy market was like a deer with like a broken leg. And there's these energy traders were a hunter stalking the deer. They're like, oh, great. This deer is wounded. You could do whatever you want now. You could definitely, easy pickings. So on top of those supply issues, it was easy to manipulate the market when it's so weak, when it's so vulnerable. Pull out 
the energy one day, sell it back the next day. The state had a price cap of that $750 per megawatt hour. And guys, that's like a 3,000% increase from their normal pricing. And I get that like the free market is, is supposed to balance those big shifts, but we don't live in a free market. That's the problem. They all talk about a free market, but there is no free market. Just like we have speed limits on highways so people don't drive 100 miles an hour, there are limits on what you could do. And so these energy market traders were freed up on what they could do. And if California wouldn't build a power plant, well, they were just going to punish California for that. Even though by the time the state really realized what was happening, all the Enron traders were three drinks deep in Barbados. I mean, just having one drought is enough to destabilize a market, but add in the delays in building more plants and there's just blood in the fucking water for these guys. I, there's just too many hunting metaphors in this series, but they all make sense to me. And they made they made a killing, guys. I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars went to Enron. Governor Gray Davis called for a state of emergency in January 2001. The energy prices didn't normalize until September 2001. Oh, and great, I'm glad the energy prices uh, leveled out just in time. <sighs> For 9-11. You know, Justin, all we've talked about so far are when Enron wins. But Enron was mounting huge losses. They had this energy trading thing that was going on that was making a lot of money. But there was also people trading different kinds of energy that was not making a lot of money. They were investing in power plants like in India and building them out. But they weren't making money. And remember, they did these mark-to-market deals. So they were booking the profits immediately. And when the losses would happen, they would shoot them off their books to an outside entity. One of the biggest projects they had was one that I got really excited about when I read about it. And I really wanted to talk about it here because we could talk about all their losses. But this is the one that, that really rang true with me. The broadband explosion, the growth of high bandwidth applications is real. It is here now. Enron Broadband has already established the superior broadband delivery network. In January 2000, Jeff Skilling announces Enron Broadband, a trading business that he said would make the company billions in just four years. He specifically said that just the idea alone was worth a $37 price increase in Enron stock. Now, you would think... Smart people that went to Yale and Harvard and Princeton that were analysts on Wall Street, that were quants, that had multiple PhDs, would not buy into something this delusional in 2000. But no, the stock did jump that day when he made that announcement. It went up. It went up, I think, a few percentage points. But still, just that news alone of some guy saying he wanted to do something and that it warranted a $37 price increase, it works. This is a delusional fucking white guy who likes to go extreme motocross biking and pounding white wine at his local bar who just got up and demanded a price increase in his stock and he got it. This is not to be confused with the modern day version of that, the CEO of WeWork. Exactly, exactly. They all, it's the same shit. They just play this same tune over and over again. Just like they were able to turn natural gas and electricity into a commodity... They wanted to do the same thing in broadband. But wait, wait, they just, they just don't want to just trade what's in the pipes. They want to also provide the content. Jeff Skilling wanted to be the leader of streaming video. 
Now, looking back, guys, you would think having the idea for streaming video in January 2000 is a fucking great idea. Who would not think this is a great idea? Looking back, hindsight, wow, what a visionary this guy was. Maybe it was worth a $37 price increase, but then you got to think a little bit about what's involved. First, though, a couple data points that I think are great. YouTube, okay, YouTube, the second largest search engine in the world, YouTube was created in February of 2005. Chocolate rain. Some stay dry and others feel the pain. Chocolate rain. A baby born will die before the sin. Netflix was still doing DVDs until it started streaming in 2007. We are the romance movie from Netflix. We hope our presence will be to your liking. There's a movie waiting for you at home. Netflix. All the DVDs you want starting at only $9.99 a month. No late fees. So maybe these guys are a little early, right? Yeah, in 2000, I think I was still pretending to be Tech Nine's cousin on AOL Instant Messenger. <laughs> was that your handle? Modem. Tech, Tech Nine cousin? <laughs> no, it was... Uh, Deep Space Nine, like the hip hop version <laughs> of the, the Star Trek show. The, the Star Trek show, yeah. <laughs> but yo, Enron had to go big because if they made big pronouncements and invested big, then their stock reflected that and they would go big. So they had to invest a bunch of startup money of their own money. They invested hundreds of millions of dollars because, after all, as my father always said, People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu. You have to spend money to make money, Sina. And I- <laughs> that is actually the motto of any rapper filming a music video as well. Exactly, right? <laughs> the Venn diagram of my father and rappers is, is very deep. It's very deep. <laughs> so here are some phrases, though, that came out of press releases from Enron about the broadband business. First, they would obviously, they said they would provide their own high-speed network, okay, Virtually unlimited bandwidth, 
built-in intelligence. I don't know. That was like a weird thing. I think it's, it's kind of like a uh, AI thing, you know, but it's like humans. So, so like Siri, but they were like trying to do it in the year 2000. Yeah, like Siri, like like we're optimizing our business procedures. And they, they basically, <laughs> they said they were going to give businesses it, like essentially an access to a powerful new breed of internet services. And, and they also, <laughs> they claimed that this service, Enron Broadband, was, quote, lit, tested, and ready. I have no idea what lit means when it comes to this <laughs> or what tested and ready means. What do you think? What does that mean to you, Justin? I mean, I think they're ahead of their time. I think they created lit as a slang term for a club that's or a party that's very lively. That's a, that's a great point. I think they were ahead of the game. They were trendsetters very early on. Why? Why? Sorry, I had to do it. So now we get to talk about another fraudster. And I'm sorry, guys. Like, there are so many fraudsters at Enron. It's mind-boggling. Ken Rice was from Skilling's inner circle. And he was brought in to run things at Enron Broadband. Now, I won't go into too much detail about him because in The Smartest Guys in the Room... Uh, they summed him up when one former Enron executive from the trading floor described him. And they described him as, quote, scumbag motherfucker. So they were on the fence about him. They were on the, they were not sure about him. They were not sure. <laughs> yeah. They, these guys all believed that Enron Broadband was going to work. But remember, they didn't sell this as a, it's going to work. They sold this as it's ready to go which means it has to start producing revenue right out of the gate. Quarterly results have to keep going. We got to meet the numbers. If the stock price goes down, then we have to cover more losses on the outside entities. And that means more stock has to go out to hedge. Must have increasing stock prices forever. You could see here that the scam is just like a gambler doubling down over and over and over again in the hopes that it would help him. And remember, when you double down, you make your bet bigger, which means the promises for Enron had to be bigger. So you have a nice, fancy presentation. It's a keynote. These slides are beautiful. It's showing a family watching television together, their favorite movie at home. Oh, my God, it's genius. How could this not work? To start, guys, most of you, I'm guessing, don't remember the Internet in 2000. But I looked up the speeds, the average speeds. The internet was th on average three thousand percent slower than it is today. <laughs> let let me just three thousand percent slower. But don't worry, even with internet speeds in their infancy, they had a plan. Customers would just buy the amount of bandwidth that they needed. Yes. You know what, Justin, do you remember in 2000 counting the megabytes that you were transmitting online during peak and off-peak hours? Oh, yes. I counted many <laughs> megabytes. How many megabytes would you use on an evening, do you think? Maybe like a four, four megabytes? Maybe like a six? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <If> I, <laughs> depends. Yeah, oh, my God. So what they did was they, they thought if you're a big company, you could sell your excess bandwidth back to people to use for residential use. All that wasted bandwidth is just sitting there. How did we get... It's like a cyberpunk thing now where we just got like weird data pipes and bandwidth sitting around 
just like lazily about waiting to be put into use or something. Like I'm not an internet scientist, clearly, but I don't think bandwidth is the same as tankers of oil sitting at a port. You know, I just don't <laughs> think that works. We're talking about physically having to move bandwidth from one line to another. Basically, your internet from Verizon is still the internet, right? But the ability to switch it to Comcast was never really realistic. You ever switch internet companies? Like when you move or something like that? Even today, even 2021, right? I, I just moved. I had to get internet, right? The guy before me had internet. He had a modem. He set it up. I came in. I said, I would like internet. And I called Spectrum and they're like, oh, yes, sir. We're just, we're going to have to send somebody out. I'm like, what are you talking about? The guy had internet. Why don't you just send me the one? I'm like, oh, we're just going to, we're going to have to send somebody out to get that turned on for you. Like, can you imagine in 2000, right? <laughs> they needed to turn on the internet for you. <laughs> yeah. They're like, we need someone to come in and staple a cable to your door frame that will look hideous forever and not be removed when you change services. <laughs> we got to send somebody out to do that. Yeah, and, and like the appointment hours are still just like, um, we have two slots on Tuesday. Would you like the 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. or the 7 p.m. to 7 a.m.? Any of those two will work for us. What would what would be more? What would work for you, sir? <laughs> but you know, Skilling thought he had all this covered, though. He thought he could figure out all of this. And what, how they were going to do this? Well, he made this announcement, which, by the way, it's not illegal to make an announcement, but it is illegal when you, <laughs> you profit off that announcement and don't actually do anything. <laughs> he would say he would say things like Enron Intelligence Network has powerful new software that would make switching internet so easy. And in reality, all of these were still in development. None of these were ready lit and ready to go, none of it. Every time they wanted to switch the internet, they had to someone had to go and actually physically switch a cable in a network. And so one of the ways they wanted to get around this as well is they wanted to build their own network. So not only did they want to compete against the telephone companies at that time, right? So like the AT&Ts of the world that were that you were paying for internet service and that owned the lines that the internet was running on. They wanted to go up against the cable companies that delivered the content. Corporate media. Corporate media, folks. The same corporate media that is a shining city on a hill that would be the dismantling of our humanity. At Enron Broadband Services, it was a hip startup before we even knew startups were just dens for douchebags. Their office had a red Hellcat motorcycle custom-built for them for $30,000 that was right in front of you when you got off the elevators. And you know what it said at the bottom? Bandwidth hog. Could you imagine? Could you could you imagine riding that into Sturgis? <laughs> it's like getting your ass kicked by like eight Hell's Angels. <laughs> but like within six months of EBS operating, one of the co-CEOs quits. But don't worry, guys. He didn't. He didn't really go fired. He he just quit on his own, and he managed to sell thirty-five million dollars of Enron stock before he left. The people that made out best at Enron were the people that left Enron. They all cashed stock out and got the fuck out of there. And that left old Ken scumbag motherfucker Rice in charge of Enron Broadband. So remember, it's 2000. And in 2000, something really special happened, guys. The tech bubble burst. And no one saw it coming. They all thought everything was going to be fine. 
analysts were saying really smart things about how they viewed the market. Down. Such is the intoxication of this current boom, the very idea is quickly dismissed. I'm not normally described, of, uh, described as perverse, but you've got to be perverse to say the market's going to crash. It may correct, it may have a major correction, but with low inflation, low unemployment, low interest rates, strong corporate earnings, I would be a certifiable lunatic if I said the market was going to crash. <laughs> Some people like to say that I'm perverse, but I'd like to say that I'm just a man that likes cotton candy on me ass. <laughs> and the market is like my ass, it will crash. <laughs> into some cotton candy. <laughs> I got that from this Journeyman TV thing on YouTube, and I just couldn't stop laughing. It's always so great to see people so sure of themselves when you can look back and see the, like the, the entire collapse of, the, of their, their perspective uh, happen in real time. But you know, that guy was wrong. Uh, so was everyone else. The market tanked. And it would tank basically in that chunk of the middle spring-ish of 2000. And it impacted the market. So this co-CEO left right when the tech bubble burst. Why? Because who wants to invest in a fucking crazy tech company that's obviously way too early? So all this money starts going south. Enron's been trying to build its network out, literally building networks with high-speed connections in the ground. But the price to sell those networks was plummeting. Technology was fucking in the tank. But Ken Rice and his homies were spending $40 million a month to invent a new technology, build the pipes in the ground, also take on the telephone companies and steal content from the cable companies. I can't imagine what could possibly go wrong. And honestly, like, I guess the way Enron was working, it didn't matter if something was going wrong. Nothing would go wrong for Enron. They just moved anything that did go wrong off their books and everything was fine. Yeah, they were like, hey, Enron's doing great, but we have uh, a lot of LLCs that are struggling right now. <laughs> Who speaks for the LLCs? They just, they just avoided paying losses in their local investments. They avoided taxes, like avoiding county property taxes by claiming a warehouse had only $500 of furniture in it instead of clarifying that that furniture was actually $20 million of telecommunication equipment. <laughs> Let me, listen, if you don't confuse several tons of fiber optic cable with an Ikea couch, <laughs> then who are you to judge? You won't be perverse, sir. <laughs> so here's how Enron, Lay, Skilling, Fast out. This is how they explained their year in the year 2000. Remember, they announced in January 2000. So every quarter, you look back and you say, here's what we did, guys. Here's how we did. So the end of the first quarter, they said $59 million in revenue. How? Well, they sold all those fiber connections, right? Fiber is the, the connective stuff that's in the ground that makes high-speed high internet happen. They had one deal that they built that was a 20-year deal. And they took the value of that deal, the $59 million, and they booked it immediately in that quarter. 20 years of revenue. They just said, all right, we did it, guys. Well done. We signed some paper. 
we made $59 million. Okay, second quarter, okay? Enron Broadband wants to use FastDAO's LJM2, one of these outside Raptors, to buy some of its dark fiber. Well, that's so creepy. So they basically were just like, Enron would go to Andy and say something like, listen, just hold this fiber, Andy, until we can find a buyer for it, right? Again, tech is plummeting. Who wants to be building fiber optic networks for technology companies when all technology sector is blowing up in a bad way? And so Enron has all this fiber. They go to Andy. They're like, hey, just hold on to it. And Andy says, sure, but if I do, you got to pay me my money. And so this escalates. And Andy, again, CFO, arguing against his own company, screaming at them at Enron Broadband to try to get him a good deal. So Fastow ends up settling on a $100 million deal. $30 million in cash, $70 million in an IOU from Enron. And they called this Project Backbone. Ken Lay personally signs off on the deal. That's quarter two. That's how they that's how they booked a bunch of revenue. So that deal then is worth a hundred million dollars. They get to say at the end of the second quarter, we sold a hundred million dollars of fiber. Just to like make that super clear. Enron invests in a company, right? Avicii. They make high speed routers. If you got high speed internet, you need high speed routers. This company goes public in July two thousand just around things when, when things are have turning for the technology company. But this company did really well. The price spiked, and their $15 million investment is now worth $150 million. But remember, when you invest in a company early, there's a lockout period, and you can't get out of the deal. So this is what kind of gets crazy. They sold their stake in that investment to Andy Fastow, and then he sold it back to Enron where they could book the profits immediately. Because if you get the stake in that investment, you say, hey, we just bought this investment in this company <laughs> the other day from an outside entity and it's worth $150 million. Look at that, people. Amazing. Finally, end of 2000. Broadband is not doing well for Enron. Somehow, though, the way I've even been just describing it, I'm thinking about it myself right now, Everything is still going well for Enron. <laughs> but no, everything is actually going terribly for Enron. No one knows, but they're desperate. They already booked the Avicii profit and everything like that, but everything is tanking. Somehow, though, for the end of the fourth quarter, Enron said they had made a deal in July that was now netting them $53 million in earnings. I, I, I ask you, who was this deal with? It's going to be a smoking gun, baby, that's going to turn it all around. Imagine the perfect video store. It would have a great selection, right? Right. Over 10,000 videos. Three evening rentals, so no rush, no hassle. Fast checkout. 24-hour quick drop return. Open late every night. Well, the perfect video store... Welcome to Blockbuster Video. ...is popping up all over the country. There's one near you. Blockbuster Video. Wow, what a difference. My favorite is uh, when they uh, I watched the last Blockbuster, and they're like, this new CEO came in, he's like, no late fees. And just like, nobody ever returned their movies. 
And then they, they, they also didn't collect late fees, so they just like lost billions of dollars. <laughs> so what was this $53 million deal, you say? Enron would provide the bandwidth because they were so good at it. <laughs> they would provide the little set-top box that goes next to your TV and the marketing and a lot of the funding. All Blockbuster had to do was let them use its brand and help get those licenses from the studios to show the movies because you need content is king, baby. Content is king. Yes, with Enron Brandwith and Dolph Lundgren's filmography, <laughs> yeah. we have formed an unstoppable juggernaut that will change the world forever. <laughs> we've we've acquired the, the next 18 sequels to Universal Soldier. Don't worry, everyone. <laughs> It'll all be fine. So again, listen, video on demand is a good idea. It is a legitimately fantastic idea. It has shifted the way we consume everything. But Jesus, this is like way too early. Way, way, way too early. For Blockbuster, they didn't give a shit. They got paid, which is great when you're a company that thrives on charging people that didn't rewind their fucking VHS tapes. Blockbuster wanted to be a little bit more prudent with everything. They wanted to line up the deals with the studios first and then announce to the world, hey, we've got all this stuff. But nah, that's not the Enron way of doing things, though. Ken Lay said he's connected. Ken Lay knows the bushes. Ken Lay said, quote, I can help you crack the studios. I've got a lot of influence. (laughs) He later would describe the deal as a killer app (laughs) and bricks clicks and flicks which is i just just it's like the boys are coming to hollywood (laughs) enron was so uncommon they couldn't do any of these things nothing these things happen can you imagine ken lay going to a movie studio and being like well you know i'm friends with the bush family maybe you could give us the the rights to the Indiana Jones movies. Yeah. I like it because it's like they're like they don't have the capacity to do any of these things. Uh but it like if they would have pulled it off, like somehow, it would have been they would have been like the world's biggest corporation. Are you kidding? They would be yeah, they would be Amazon if they pulled it off, right? Which if they pulled it off, they would have had to like invent technology that wasn't invented yet. And Yeah. I mean, it's just like in the same way. Yeah, it's like if I invented, you know, the Starship Enterprise, I would probably be better. I'd be better than like SpaceX right now. But yeah, yeah, phasers don't don't exist yet. It also reminds me, ever see those like uh, I've got one of my favorite types of videos to watch on YouTube are robot fails. And it's like when a robot just like doesn't work right. And it starts like spinning around and everyone's like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? This feels like Enron trying to do broadband where they're like, we got this amazing robot. Oh, my God. Why is it hurting everybody? Why doesn't it work? You know, my favorite robot fail is. What's that? Terminators uh, three through seven. (laughs) (laughs) So Enron. Couldn't negotiate high-speed DSL, which is like high-speed internet, from the phone companies. Uh, Even though they told everyone they had the phone companies in their pocket. They begged Blockbuster at this point, right? This is still July. They begged Blockbuster to stay in the deal. They said, we can do this. So part of the way to keep Blockbuster in, because again, Blockbuster was a real company at one point, right? They were like, we're out of here. You guys are insane. I can't believe we got into business with you. And Ron's like, don't worry. We're going to launch these trials in Seattle, 
Portland, New York, and Salt Lake City. They ended up only getting 300 households to be in this initial go. And not only is this not widely available, but the people in the trial still had to pay $5 for a movie. And Enron, when they would do this, only made $1.20. So since it was a trial too, they didn't even really charge that many people. So in the year 2000, are you really going to pay $5 for a movie that you may not like at a speed in which you probably have to wait a half hour for the fucking video to just download to your television? Probably half hour is being very conservative. It's probably going to be more like three hours. You're going to download it for three hours to, and by the way, to your fat back television. Yeah, exactly. That your, your RCA television that weighs 900 pounds increases the overall temperature of your house by like 12 degrees. And if you get too close to that TV, it could shock you to death. (laughs) (laughs) Their average at Enron was people getting 1.8 videos a month, half of what they expected. So what were the movies that really brought home the revenue for Enron? A bear's gotta do what a bear's gotta do. Rise and shine and get a glow because you know you're gonna shine like a star. You are, you are, you know. Yes, the Care Bears movie. Seven people purchased it. Enron made $8.40. Okay. It's hilarious. Enron, Enron did worse than both of my comedy albums. That's hilarious. <laughs> Ken Rice, though, that scumbag motherfucker, has a plan. They called it Project Braveheart. Yes, after the movie. So, Lay goes ahead after the trial, announces the deal in July. And Rice quietly starts selling off their stake in the deal that Ken Lay just announced to outside buyers, which allowed them to book the profits from that immediately. So they artificially inflated the value of something, sold it before everyone finds out it's bullshit, and collect the profits from it. So Fast Out was able to even bring in other investments to these Raptors to buy that shitty blockbuster deal from Enron. Larry Ellison was one of them, CEO of Oracle. This is a legit dude. He's one of like the founders of the modern internet. They were even able to sell the investment to a bank. And the idea wasn't to like sell it to them because this bank uh, is like the Canadian Imperial Bank. It's not like this bank wanted to be in the streaming video or the broadband business. They were actually doing it as a favor for Enron, for Andy Fastow. They were only going to get paid $100,000 to hold on to this investment. And by doing that, Andy Fastell told this very friendly bank that they would make them one of his, quote, tier one banks, the ones that got all the good Enron deals that were not actually good deals. Such as the Enron space program. (laughs) Enron milkshakes. (laughs) And... The Backstreet Boys solo albums. <laughs> all of them. All of them. Yeah, all, all of them. <laughs> so people are clamoring to do handshake deals for millions of dollars, take on all the risk, get paid nothing, 
just so they can get into a room where they can get access to a lot more deals that are already worthless. And the magic here is that everyone is smiling. Smiles, smiles, smiles for days. Let me take a moment and also say that Arthur Anderson signed off on all of these deals. <laughs> I think this is just shell, and we just talked about it, right? Shell after shell after shell. And this is how they were able to book profits, hide losses, and get people in the door to keep funding their future lost investments. All right, so let's talk about the profits they booked, right? Enron saw everything working out perfectly by the year 2010. That's right. In 10 years, they thought because of the fucking like five or seven people that bought Care Bears, they were like, this, this has got legs. This is going to work. They actually said that they thought Enron Broadband would be in 82 cities and that Enron would control 50% of the video-on-demand market. Only one guy at Arthur Anderson, an accountant, Carl Bass, said this was complete bullshit. He would write things like, quote, help me out here. How do you sell an asset and generate operating cash flow? Okay, so I don't know anything about accounting, really, but I know the rhythm of a sarcastic joke in an email when I hear one, and that has got it all over it. So if you're an accounting major, why don't you tell us if that's funny or not? Hit us up, 412-285-1255, or just add us, you know, fraudstersLPN, fraudstersLPN at gmail.com. Yeah, I'm guessing, right, you can't sell the thing and then claim you're making money off of it, like, uh, continually. I think that's the general idea, but I don't know what operating cash flow. I feel like that's a very specific thing. But, yeah, they basically sold a thing, and they were like, this is, this is we've got all this money now. It's fantastic. But instead of saying... They were $100 million in the hole, which they were at that time. They claimed a $53 million gain. <laughs> and they ended the year, right? And every startup loses money as they go, right? But it's a question of how much money are they losing. Of their $500 million initial investment, they said they only lost about $60 million of that money by the end of the year. Completely fictional. 100% fiction but they met their expectations for the year what do you know what a surprise and at the company christmas party that year they even made a slideshow joking about how they did the deal they even made uh, the lone voice that guy carl best they made the the arthur anderson guy into the grinch that stole christmas they did a whole bit i'll read it from uh, smartest guys in the room one deal two deal red deal no deal you cannot do it without gap. You cannot do it because it's crap. You cannot do it for 25. What the hell? Let's go for 65. So gap is the generally accepted accounting principles or whatever, accounting practices, something like that. And they're basically talking about here that the guy at Arthur Anderson was like saying, it's a bad deal. You're, you can't do it for this much money. So they just made up another number, went even bigger just so they could get it by the auditors. And of course, what were their expectations for 2001? Only a slight loss of $65 million, even though Skilling had just gotten an estimate a couple days earlier before he made this announcement that they were going to lose about $65 million in the whole year from Enron Broadband. He got an estimate a couple days earlier that said, we're probably going to lose $150 million in the first quarter. 
The first three months of 2000, Enron Broadband would lose $150 million. Ken Rice said the content business alone, again, Care Bears, he said the content business alone was worth $21 billion and that their entire broadband business was worth $36 billion. Between February 2000 and 2001, Ken Rice made $50 million selling Enron stock, telling everyone it was perfect and losing money the whole time. Richard Causey, the chief accounting officer, our old buddy, he looked at the prospects for 2001 and said this, quote, from an accounting standpoint, this will be our easiest year ever. We've got 2001 in the bag. <laughs> in reality, the deals that were booked with $20 million in profit were actually $70 million in the hole. And they all just got pushed off the books. In March 2001, just a couple months after they said the Blockbuster deal had made them $53 million, they said, you know what? We're going to go our separate ways with Blockbuster. This 20-year deal is over. And then they blamed Blockbuster for not being able to get movie deals. And the analysts, of course, Blockbuster sucks. I hate Blockbuster. I get charged for not rewinding and bringing my video one day late. Fuck them. I like it, though, that, yeah, people blamed Blockbuster, but nobody interrogated the fact that Enron is like, we made $53 million by doing business with Blockbuster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No one's like, no one has made any money with Blockbuster. <laughs> Blockbuster is such a terrible company. I do believe they were not a good partner, but also they generated all this money for Enron. Like, what, like, yeah, it's love. It's just, none of it makes sense. Yeah. But dude, all these analysts bought it. They all bought it. They didn't penalize Enron stock at all. Enron comes out of the dot-com bubble actually pretty unscathed. But of course, folks, come on. It's fraudsters. That all is going to end soon. All of this would come crashing down when the losses that mounted were too much and when certain people started asking, Why? Why? Next week, we're talking to whistleblower Sharon Watkins, one of the people who wrote a memo that would help be the downfall of Enron. Big thanks to Emily Fusco, Hazel Bryan, Marie Anderson, Hannah Shaw, and, of course, Colin Whitehead for being brave enough to come on the show. Really appreciate it. This has been a production of Last Podcast Network and Zero Cool Media. Come back next week for the final episode of Season 1 of Fraudsters, where we talk to the whistleblower, Sharon Watkins. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.